0: Bible, please take it and open it up to Romans chapter 8. We're back to Romans today, Uh, and we are going to be today in Romans 8 verses 23 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, and uh, you are welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. Uh, We want you to have God's Word in your life. Let's read together. I'm going to start reading a little bit before where we are today. I'm going to start reading at verse 18, but we're actually going to be in verses 23 through 25 today. It says this, starting at verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I want to ask all of you the same question that I asked to the middle school and high school students at our first youth night a couple weeks ago, which is this Is there something in your life that you're hoping for? Something maybe where you think, well, this is the thing that's just ahead. If I could just get this thing, or if I could just reach this goal, if this could change in my life, well, then that's where I would finally be satisfied. That's where I would finally be content. Now, there's lots of things in this world that tempt us in that way. Maybe it's possible that somebody in here truly has their hope set on something in this life. If that's the case, then I hope that this will turn you to a better hope. But we also know, even, as, even us who are trusting in Christ, we know that there are those milestones ahead of us, those things where we think, when I just get there, boy, then I can rest. Right? Well, it, it, just the other day, after I had, had already thought to myself, well, that's, what I'm, that's how I'm going to open the sermon, I went to, to get pizza for our family. And I said to the guys at the pizza place, how are you doing? How are things in here today? And, and the guy behind the counter said, it'd be a lot better if I won the lottery. <laughs> you can just imagine him back there making those pies and daydreaming. What if I got that jackpot? Boy, well, then everything would be okay. We'll talk about the lottery another time. We've talked about that before. But guys, there is so much in this world where people just think, boy, if I just got that, it would be okay. But God calls us to a better hope a greater hope, something that is lasting, something that's not going to rust, get moth-eaten, fade away like the things of this world. He calls us to treasure in heaven, as Jesus put it. And this is a description of what it is that we're waiting for, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies that Jesus has given us. Let's look at verse 23 and see where it says, not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Now, when he says there, not only the creation, we might have to think back a couple weeks, okay? I think it was about three weeks ago that we were in the previous verses, and I know not everybody who's here today would have been here then, so let's just look and see what it says in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So these previous verses that came before this were saying that the creation itself, this world that God has made, has fallen into this cursed state as a result of sin. That happened in Genesis chapter 3. Part of the curse that came after Adam and Eve sinned against their creator in the garden was that God didn't just curse Satan who tempted them, and he didn't just curse them such that they would have hard labor and painful childbirth and and death, but he also cursed the earth itself and said it's going to bring forth for you thorns and thistles. There's going to be, you know, we can expand upon that and say, well, that's where our hurricanes and earthquakes and cancers come from, is from this curse on the earth. And this is saying that in the, in the, in the, the time that Jesus comes, And redeems all things. When we get to Revelation chapter 21, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The creation itself is going to be set free from its bondage to decay. And so the things that it's going through right now are like the pains of childbirth, where yes, it's painful, but there is something better coming. And so, where he says that we ourselves, in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, he's saying, We Christians, we Christians have that same kind of pains of childbirth. Now, now some of you have had the actual pains of childbirth before, and as I said before, I know exactly how you feel. (laughs) I can't believe you laughed at that again. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't. But it's saying here that we have that same, uh, as the creation groans for what's better to come, that Christians groan for what's better to come. That, that we do this because we are new creations within the creation. He says not only the creation, but also, and that, that's kind of, if you're just thinking about the grammar, that's, here's something that is significant, but let me take you to something even more significant. Let me to take you to something bigger than that. Yes, it's significant that the creation itself is waiting to be set free from the bondage to decay, waiting for that time when Jesus makes all things new. But it's even more significant, even greater, that we ourselves, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are groaning, we are longing, we have our hope set on a time that is not yet. On something that Jesus has already bought with his blood but hasn't brought into being with his glorious presence yet. And and as we do that, it says that it's we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's where you see that it's talking about us, Christians, as being a new creation within the old creation. Jesus is, is making all things new. You know, this new creation is spoken of back in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah, spoken of really clearly in the New Testament, places like Revelation. But we're also told in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. This is part of why we feel that groaning. This is part of why we have a different outlook on the world than unbelievers have on the world, is because we're not only created beings, but as those who have come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has recreated us. He's made us new. He's taken away our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh to be God's children. Another word for this is to be born again, to be regenerated. He's made us new creations. Part of the way that we see that and the way that it's pointed out here in verse 23 is it says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's that talking about? Boy, there's a lot of different ways you could take that. You could say maybe it's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, maybe it's talking about this. I think what it's talking about here is first fruits. It's, it's kind of like there's a harvest coming. Right. There's, there's going to be a whole giant crop, but we've got the first little bit of it. And what is the first little bit of it that we have? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and the possession of the Holy Spirit by believers in Jesus Christ, that that's the first fruit. We, we can look and we can see, yes, God is making all things new. There's a new creation coming. When Jesus comes, it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be no more suffering or pain or, or any of those things. It's going to be perfected but we've got a little bit of it right now. We already do. We've got the first fruits of the great big harvest that's coming, and the first fruits that we have is the Holy Spirit who has come and applied the gospel to our hearts, changed our hearts, given us the gift of faith, given us the gift of genuine faith that comes together with repentance, given us the gift to look at Jesus and love him, this is, this is the Holy Spirit and this possession to the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4.30, when it tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, he calls the Holy Spirit of God, the one by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You hear that? He's, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits we've been given. And the Holy Spirit is the one who has sealed us. Mike, when we, when we were doing Sunday school earlier, he referred to the Holy Spirit as sort of like an engagement ring that we've already been given. We, he's, he's the seal, the stamp on the contract. This is going through. He's the guarantee, He's the down payment, He's the first fruits. He's been given to us, and we've been sealed for what? For the day of redemption. And that day of redemption that he's talking about, he's not talking about the day when Jesus died on the cross. Although, in one sense, that is a day of redemption because that's the day when Jesus died to redeem us. But when he says the day of redemption, he's talking about the day when God brings it all together. The day when we're no longer waiting for something that's still to come. The day when all of this is finally finished. The day when we're raised from the dead and we're declared righteous in front of everyone for all time. And we go to live body and soul in the presence of Jesus. That's the day of redemption that we've been sealed for, but we already have the first fruits. See, what we have here is we have, sometimes people call this the already and the not yet. We've already been saved, and we are being saved. We are already a new creation in Christ, and we're going to one day have our resurrection bodies. We already are redeemed and we are waiting for the day of redemption. But the Holy Spirit is that seal, that down payment, that first fruits where we can say the Spirit of Christ that I feel and see working every time I open up this book of words that he wrote for me, the Bible. This Spirit has sealed me for that day. He is the first fruits of my redemption and my new creation. So we have this already, but we're not yet complete in Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We're already God's children. We will be like him. And we have the guarantee, the seal, the first fruits of the Spirit, And that's why we groan inwardly right now. That's what it says here, that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that day. What does that mean? Well, we we groan inwardly about various categories of things. There's a lot wrong in the world. There's a a lot wrong with us. And both of those things are worth groaning about. Groaning in this way that it's speaking of here, not grumbling about, but a godly kind of longing for what's to come. We groan inwardly about things like the moral evil of the world around us. We groan inwardly about things like the temptations that come to us from the world around us and from Satan himself. We groan inwardly about things like physical problems. There are physical problems of the world around us. Things. Fall apart. Disasters happen. And we also need to groan inwardly as we look at the fact that we are not yet perfected in ourselves. We, we need to groan inwardly as we look at our own moral weakness. As we look at the fact that we are still in this mortal body, this body of death. As, as we would say together with Paul in Romans seven twenty four, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? that's an inward groaning we groan also about our physical weakness we have bodies that may or may not be in various states of health right now but they're dying bodies and we can see that and we groan inwardly about that we long for the redemption of our bodies and we groan because of sin we groan because of misery those are the two things that came into the world and into humanity in the Garden of Eden when our first parents sinned there. Went from holiness and happiness to sin and misery. And as we see the reality of that sin, we groan inwardly. As we see the reality of that misery, we groan inwardly. And I want to ask you, do you groan inwardly as you're waiting for Jesus to restore holiness, as you're waiting for Jesus to restore happiness? those things that were broken because of sin. I wonder, believer, are you sometimes are you worried that your frustration about your indwelling sin means that you're not a Christian? Well, I, I want to I assure you what this is saying here. One of the things that it's saying is that the groaning that we have, that we're not yet complete in Christ, it's actually evidence of the fact that the holy spirit is there. Lost people don't care that there are sinners from the heart. They don't care. It's normal as a christian to say, "Why is it that sin keeps creeping into my heart? I hate it." It's not a sign that you're a lost person, it's a sign that the holy spirit is at work in your heart where sin is still there too. You will be complete, believer. You will be complete. You will attain to the resurrection from the dead, and we groan for it. But you need to know this too. The groaning that we have as Christians is not the same as the groaning of non-Christians. It's not the same as the groaning of the lost world. There's a lot of groaning out there. But when it says here, I, I want you to look at the verse. Look at verse 23. It says that we groan inwardly, inwardly, That's one of the big differences between the groaning of a Christian and the groaning of the world. God doesn't just look and see what we do, God doesn't just listen and hear what we say. God sees the inward parts. God doesn't look on man as man looks on man, He sees the heart. God looks in your heart, He sees it in all the ways on the inside all the ways that you can categorize the heart, which has to do with your mind, the things that you think, whether on purpose or not on purpose. He, has, he, he looks at the affections of your heart, what it is that you love, what it is that you hate, what it is that you're indifferent about. He looks at your will, what it is that you want to do, what it is that you don't want to do. All of those things. He looks at your conscience, how it is that you are obeying or violating the ways that he is pricking your conscience. He looks there on the inside and he looks to see what is the true reality of man. He sees the things in your heart that we don't see. But one of the things that's present in the life of a Christian is an inward groaning. A groaning from the heart about these things that are not right now, with sin and misery in ourselves and in the world. But the fact that we groan inwardly about those things does not contradict some other things that we have also in the Scripture. For example, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. That's true. That's a command of Scripture at the same time that it says that we groan inwardly and give thanks in all circumstances. And I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's interesting, isn't it? The kind of groaning that it's talking about here as a good, healthy groaning that's from the Holy Spirit does not in any way call us to be discontent, doesn't call us to stop giving thanks, doesn't call us to set aside the joy that we are commanded to have in Christ. But just as an example, take that one verse, give thanks in all circumstances. Does it say give thanks for all circumstances? It doesn't say that, but it says give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, but is is it saying rejoice about everything you see? Obviously not. not. We're not supposed to delight in evil when we see evil. But in all of these things, here's the thing about a Christian. From the heart, we groan for righteousness. We groan for redemption. We groan for what is against God to be brought into line with the fullness of the glory of God, whether it's through the demonstration of his grace or the demonstration of his justice. We long for it to be finished And even at the same time, as we're groaning, we can groan for it with contentment. Where we say, I know that things are not right now. But I know that he who is for me is greater than he who is in the world. I know that if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We can have that contentment even as we groan. So that's one difference between the kind of groaning that the world has and the groaning that we have. We groan in hope, where the world groans in hopelessness. But a second way is that our groaning is inward. It gets at the heart. It's not a fake groaning, as hypocrites. There is such a thing as a fake groaning. There is a hypocritical kind of groaning where those who don't know the Lord would say, oh, I can seem like I'm one of those people who knows the Lord if I get upset about abortion. Well, I hope that you, when you think of abortion, I hope that when you think of that horrible, horrible injustice that is done toward the most innocent people among us, I hope that that causes you to groan, to ask God to put that to an end. I hope that that causes you to long for the new creation, I hope that spurs you to action in various ways. But it is also possible for someone to say, that's what Christians look like. I'm going to pretend like I care about that. Or not just that, but to say, I'm going to pretend like I care about my sin. I'm going to pretend like my sin bothers me. I'm going to pretend like the brokenness of the world bothers me when secretly from the heart I'm in love with the world. Now, this says that we, who are God's children, who are part of the new creation, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we don't groan hypocritically, we groan inwardly. People who don't have faith in Christ, if they, if they acknowledge God at all, then they tend to assume that God must be on their side. That He must be. When they're not suffering, they think that God must be on their side because they are not suffering. Because God has has healed my sickness, that must mean that God is on my side. When in fact, Romans 2 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not to show you that you don't need repentance. Or on the other hand, when unbelievers are not suffering, they think that God must be on their side, in the sense that He is obligated to get on their side because they are suffering. Oh, God, if you're a merciful God, I'm suffering. You absolutely must be for me. And there could be a kind of groaning that is not the inward groaning here, a kind of groaning that is an accusation against God. God, you are under obligation to do this for me, to grant me the worldly comforts that I don't have right now. I don't want to sound insensitive to suffering. We want to be sensitive to suffering, we want to care for those who are suffering. But you need to know that the fact that you are suffering does not put God on your side. It does not put under, God under obligation to you. It doesn't say to God that He has to give you what it is that you're longing for. Those who don't have faith in Christ, it, it's kind of like they're looking at God like an annoying butler. When things are just fine, they would look at Him and say, Why are you here? Go upstairs to your quarters, stay quiet, things are fine, I don't need you. But when things are not fine, then they're crying out to him, they're groaning, they may even tell you, I'm praying all the time. But what kind of groaning is it? It's not not the inward groaning of the Holy Spirit at work in them, it's the groaning of shouting at the butler, why aren't you here? Why aren't you bringing me what I need for my comforts? It may be that they're opening their mouths even in some sort of prayer, but their heart is far from him in their inward being. But we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we who know Christ, we groan inwardly. I want to I ask you, do you, have, do you have the boldness, do you have the courage to examine your own heart about things like this? Do you groan inwardly from the heart for the coming redemption, for the day of Christ, I want to know, is, is your mind set on God when you suffer? Is your love and your affection set on God when you suffer? Is your will in submission to God when you suffer? If you're, if you're groaning, if you're longing for something different, are you crying out to God with your inward being in faith and in hope for the redemption of Jesus Or are you crying out as a hypocrite who demands that he do something for you like a butler? So we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly. And what is it that we're waiting for? This is point number two on the back of your bulletin. What is it that we're waiting for? Well, it says we are waiting for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, the way that he puts that, It's saying we are waiting for adoption as sons, and then he adds on the redemption of our bodies to explain what it is that he's talking about. So, when we say adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, we're not talking about two different things in this verse. It's two different ways of describing the same thing. But let's take them both. Let's think about adoption as sons. When when we have come to faith in Jesus, we've been adopted. That's various places in the scripture that uh, you see this in Ephesians 1. We've already seen it in in Romans. We see it all over the place. When, When God takes us to himself, regenerates our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes, makes us born again. He makes us God's brand new babies, and he brings us into his family. He adopts us as sons. And the reason he says sons there and not just generic children is because there's an expectation that there is a full inheritance for all of you. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, you are adopted as sons with the full inheritance when you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a thing that's already the case, but here it also says that it's something that's not yet the case. That's interesting, isn't it? It says we're waiting for adoption as sons. How could it be? that believers in Jesus have already been adopted, but we're waiting to be adopted. Well, it's because that adoption of sons is real, it's there, but it's not complete until the day when there's a public declaration of it. That's what he's getting at here. When when we adopted two children in our family, who I love so, so much, Really am so, so glad about this, but there, there in that adoption process, there was actually a period of time where there were no other parents or guardians in the world who had any legal claim to these two kids. We were the sole legal guardians already of those two kids, but we weren 't yet officially their parents it wasn 't officially a complete adoption until that day when we had the court hearing and it got finished and the judge declared publicly that it was so. And in the same way when we've come to faith in Jesus, it's already the case. There is no other claim on our hearts. We are no one else's children. We have been brought in, we are adopted, but one day there's coming the day at the day of judgment when we've been resurrected from the dead, when we will be publicly declared to be God's children. That's what he's talking about here. We're waiting for that day when the adoption that's already real is going to be publicly declared. Here's what the Baptist Catechism says about the resurrection that believers are headed toward. It says, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body to the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. By the way, if you are, if you are among those who have in your heart that you would just be satisfied if, if you could get public recognition, if you could become famous or gain a certain number of social media followers or get recognition in a certain circle of people that's important to you, if you think, well, that's, that's when I would finally arrive, when I get that recognition. What your heart is really longing for is the adoption of sons in the day of redemption. That's what you're longing for. You may not know it. You're waiting for the day when you will be publicly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. The way to it is through Christ, not through self-promotion. It's the adoption of sons. But he describes it here, not just the adoption of sons, but he clarifies, what are we talking about? The redemption of our bodies. He's saying, I am talking about the day of final resurrection when all of those who are just by faith in Christ are raised from the dead, not to eternal destruction, but to eternal life. That's the day we're talking about, the redemption of our bodies. When it says this here, we need to remember that that Jesus saves us as whole people. He doesn't just save our souls. He saves us as whole people. Jesus is, is, is our creator. He's our redeemer. When God made us, when he made humans, he didn't make us just bodies. He didn't make us just souls. He made us whole people, both body and soul. And you know what? When sin came in and condemned us, it condemned us as whole people, body and soul, to death. And when Jesus has come to redeem us, he didn't just redeem our souls, he redeemed us as whole people, body and soul. Now that can be confusing because we go to funerals, right? And we see the reality that when people die, that their souls have departed from their bodies, and we bury their bodies. And sometimes people are even misguided and tempted by worldly thinking to think that, well, that body is now no longer my relative, is no longer the person, it's just an empty shell, it's something that doesn't matter. But this tells us that's not the case, that God redeems us as entire whole people, and that even though, here's what's gonna happen, believer, when you die, what happens is that your soul immediately passes into the presence of Christ in glory. And though you die, you live. And you will be made perfect in holiness. You will be happy in Jesus. And we call that time that when your soul goes straight to heaven, one of the ways that we refer to that time is as the intermediate state. Because even that is not the end. That's not the finished state. When, you're, when your soul has been separated from your body and you are in the presence of Jesus, you will be extremely happy about God. And your body is going to be waiting in the grave until the day of resurrection, when it can be raised up and brought back together with your soul, and you can be a whole person again, body and soul in Jesus Christ. And we even have a picture in the book of Revelation about souls of believers around the throne of God, souls in particular of martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith, who are crying out to God, even as they're in heaven, even as they're happy in Jesus and totally holy, they're crying out, how long, O Lord? How long until you finish this work of redemption? How long until you bring justice on the wicked on the earth? How long until the resurrection of the dead? How long until my soul gets put back together with my body to live in completion, in pain-free, it's this pain-free, disease-free state, full holiness and happiness, blessedness in body and soul, in the presence of God, the full enjoyment of God for all eternity. That's what we're looking forward to. And it says, we are groaning for that. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of of our bodies. Now, this resurrection that's coming, it's spoken of in in various places. Bob read one of those for us from Daniel chapter 12 earlier, that those in the dust will be raised, those who are wicked, I can't remember how it put it, I should have just, let me just turn there, all right? Daniel chapter 12, you can see this is not something that was like, the development of religion in the sociological terms over time. This is the way that God has been showing it all along. He says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has, ch- has charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time but at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book as it's described in Revelation. It's, this is the, uh, the Lamb's book of life and those whose names are written there have been written there from before the foundation of the world. But it says verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What this is telling us is the same thing that said in Acts 24:15. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, of both the righteous and the wicked. You, human being, you were born wicked. The only way we can be declared righteous is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To turn away from ourself, to turn away from our sin in repentance and to turn to Jesus and to trust in him instead of trusting in ourself or whatever else we could think of to trust in. Jesus, who is the only righteous one, who is the only one who could fully live out the perfect law of God, the only one who could perfectly take the full penalty for our sins on himself on the cross, so that his sin would be, or excuse me, our sin would be counted to him and his righteousness could be counted to us. So there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust and the only way to be in the resurrection of the just, to be counted righteous in God's sight, if not by getting good, It is by believing in the one who's good, whose name is Jesus. So when we have faith in Jesus, we can be assured that we will be part of the resurrection of the just. There is a glorification that's coming for us. He's going to tell us later on here that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, so that we could be among the resurrection of the just. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that glorified state is going to be a state where our souls and our bodies are put back together, the graves are broken open, and we are raised in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead. I just want to read you what 1 Corinthians 15 says about this. One thing that it says about this is that if you deny that there is a future bodily resurrection coming for us, you are not a Christian. Now maybe you just haven't ever wrapped your mind around this concept. Maybe you just heard the term heaven so much that you always thought that what we're pointing toward ultimately is a disembodied floating state. Maybe you just didn't understand. That's one thing. But if you actually say to yourself, no, that's crazy talk. God's not going to bust our graves open and get us up physically from the dead. If that's the case, you need to meet the risen Jesus. You need to come to know Christ who went to death before us and was raised before us. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15:12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he says in verse 19 of that chapter, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me put it very plainly. If your hope is only to be a disembodied soul floating around playing a harp, this says your faith is pointless. It says if in this life only we have hoped, we are most people all uh, uh, of all people most to be pitied. And any form of so-called Christianity that denies a future resurrection of the body, according to 1 Corinthians 15 is not Christianity. And it's pointless, and it does not save anyone. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and there is a coming resurrection of the dead, and that resurrection is a resurrection to life for, for all who are in Christ. Some would ask, when, when, when we say the redemption of our bodies, what's it talking about? What's that going to be like? What's the body going to be like? Well, I'll just read you what it says. 1 Corinthians 15, verses, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. We've we've got our perishable bodies right now, our mortal bodies. But when you're raised from the dead, this body is going to be transformed in such a way that it's no longer perishable. Right? We're going to be in the canned goods aisle now. No, that's, that's a terrible way. I'm sorry, everybody. We're going to be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, so that was talking about Adam, and now the second man is Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let me just summarize that by saying if you want to know what your resurrection body is going to be like, go back and look at the final chapters of Matthew and of Mark and of Luke and of John and see how Jesus, the risen Jesus, is described. He was in his same body so that he could go up to Thomas and say, here, put your finger in my wounds if you don't believe. Put your hand in my side. It's the same body. Was f- he, he was in the flesh. He ate fish. And yet, some strange things were going on <laughs> where he would appear in a room where the door was locked. How did that happen? I don't know. But it says here in the same way we we bear the image of the man of dust when we're raised from the dead we're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. So however Jesus in his resurrected body is and not was but is now still. Remember he ascended into heaven in it. He's still there. He's coming back in it. We're also going to be raised from the dead in a body like that. Here's another thing it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means not every Christian is going to physically die. Probably all of us will, but who knows? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed." Guys, we are waiting for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what you're groaning for, believer. Set your hope there. Set your hope on the day when, as as, as Job put it, in possibly the earliest book that was written in the Bible, where he says uh, that in my flesh I shall see God. Put your hope there. One of the things that you can do is don't treat your body as meaningless, Don't treat your body itself or the things that you do in your body as meaningless. This body that you have, it's the one that God's going to raise, perfected, and eternal. And even right now, even as it's not raised, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body god doesn't just own your soul he owns your body too and how we use it how we conduct ourselves in it how we treat it it matters because jesus's blood was shed not just for our souls but for our bodies as well another thing that we need to do is we need to place the preaching of the gospel as the church's highest mission you may say to yourself where's the pastor getting that Well, I'm getting that because we're often accused as actual believing Christians, as evangelicals, or that word's meaningless sometimes now, but as, as those who believe the actual biblical gospel, sometimes we're accused of not caring about people's physical needs because we prioritize the saving of their souls higher than their physical needs. That needs to be the case but remembering that we're not just talking about the saving of their souls, we're talking about the saving of their bodies too, right? So, so sometimes we hear this accusation, oh, you guys are all just about, you, you know, you, you'll let people stay in their suffering as long as you're convinced that their souls are going to float off to heaven one day. Well, let me say two things about that. One is we don't want to let anybody stay in their suffering. When we have an opportunity to show mercy and relieve suffering, we need to take that opportunity. But here's the other thing. If we show mercy about worldly things without preaching the gospel, you know what we're giving them when we relieve their suffering? We're giving them what moth and rust will destroy. We're giving them things that will fade away. When we preach the gospel, when we make the gospel and the salvation of sinners what it is that we're about then we're not only about meeting physical this-world problems, we're about seeing people raised from the dead in their bodies to eternal life. To eternal life. I just imagine that after that day, after that final day of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the wicked who have been raised in such a way as to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever, the accusations that they hurled against the church in this life are going to be different from the accusations that they're hurling against the church from the lake of fire. In this life, they're saying, why are you caring so much about seeing people saved? And I would imagine then they're saying, why did you not care more about seeing people saved? We need to be about that. But as we do this, it says that we're hoping for what we do not see. Look in verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. couple of things. For one thing, it says we were saved. That's a past tense. But it also says we're waiting for something. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And even back in chapter 5, he talked about how we're, we're waiting for the salvation to come. I think it's chapter 5. Uh, where is it? Here we go. Never mind. <laughs> but you see this in different places in the Scripture where we have, uh, we have uh, salvation is spoken of as something that already happened, something that is happening, something that will happen. And it says we were saved, but we were saved in this hope in this hope that something is coming. See, when, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're not just believing in what already happened in the past. You absolutely must believe that. You must believe, according to, according to Hebrews 11, to have faith you must believe that God created the world, that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You must believe that he died for your sins. You must believe that he rose from the dead. You must believe upon him for your salvation. But part of it also is that we believe that there are future promises that are ours, that we will see. That's what hope is. Hope is so closely related to faith. It says in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it says we were saved in this hope. This hope that what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago and in his resurrection from the dead three days later is something that we are going to see in our own lives in real time and space and matter when Jesus raises us imperishable forever and ever. In this hope, we were saved. But he says that hope is something that we don't yet see. It reminds me, I mentioned earlier when Jesus took out his hands and told Thomas, you can put your finger here if you want. One of the things he says is, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's believing, that's hoping for what we don't yet see. If you have something already, you don't hope for it, do you? But that's what hope is. We know it's coming. Hope of the world Is different than Christian hope. The hope of the world is the guy in the pizza shop saying, I hope I hit that big lottery. The hope of the Christian is, Jesus has died and has risen and has promised that he is coming again. This is coming. It's not, I hope it's coming. It is, this is my hope in life and death. Jesus is bringing about my full redemption in body and in soul. It's coming. And we don't lay up treasures on earth, we lay up treasures in heaven because of that. And it says, as we wait, we wait with patience. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That patience, a lot of people say, don't pray for patience. But we gotta pray for patience. Because one way or the other, whether you've prayed for patience or not, you're gonna suffer. There will be suffering. And we need that fruit of the Holy Spirit that is patience. Or another word for patience Long-suffering, right? And it says, Christians, don't be surprised by this. Don't think that because you're suffering that God has forsaken you. We groan inwardly as we have our hope and we endure that suffering with patience knowing that our redemption is coming. It is another place where he connects this hope to our, to our suffering. It says in Romans 5-2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Which is saying pretty much the same thing as these verses. He's saying we have this hope in Christ and it's a sure hope and we can wait with patience because of it. I want to ask you this. Are you suffering right now even though you are a forgiven, believing, born-again Christian? Are you suffering? Well, here's what this tells us to do. Wait in patience. Treat that suffering as an opportunity to grow in hope. Treat it as an opportunity to set your mind on the resurrected Christ and on that eternal resurrected life that we're going to have in Jesus because he bought it And he gave us the down payment of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit right now. Are you apart from Christ? Are you trusting in something other than Christ? Or you don't care one way or the other? And yet you're suffering. Are you suffering apart from Christ? You need to know this. Your suffering is a merciful opportunity from God to repent and believe and have eternal life. This is one of the things that Jesus teaches when there is a great tragedy. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying where there is suffering, where there is difficulty, where there is pain, that that is a call from God to repent, to believe, to take hold of eternal life in Jesus before it's too late. Or are you free from suffering right now? You should thank God for that. And you should treat that as an opportunity to prepare for when suffering does come, for when you will have to have that patience, when you'll be groaning more than you're groaning right now. Treat it as an opportunity to prepare. Treat it as an opportunity also to turn and to serve the people around you who are suffering right now. Maybe that's why God is giving you a time of refreshing so that you can refresh others. But in all of that, just know that even though he says in some places that suffering and disaster is a call to repent, he also says in Romans 2.4 that non-suffering, his kindness, is also a call to repent. It's meant to lead you to repentance. So in all these things, we're to turn to Jesus in repentance, in faith, in hope, because Jesus has purchased our redemption and will bring it about. We will see it face to face. Here's what it says to do in Hebrews 12.2 as we're going through difficulties, as we're groaning, as we face temptation, as we face things that make us suffer long. It says that we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Jesus went through it before you, and he even went to death And he came out on the other side alive. Look to Jesus. Trust him. Hope in him and in that life that he's giving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has paid it all. I thank you that he has died for sinners. I thank you that he has risen from the dead, imperishable, immortal. And God, I thank you for that adoption as sons, that redemption of our bodies that is ahead for all who believe because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that where there is groaning in our hearts that's not godly groaning, that's not the inward groaning that's talking about, but instead is discontentment and grumbling and complaining, I pray that you would forgive us and grant repentance of those things and grant us instead to groan for righteousness and to groan for redemption even as we seek you, even as we give thanks in all circumstances and rejoice always. Father, I pray for those who today, Lord, if the day of the Lord came right now, that right now they would stand before you not as sheep but as goats. They would not be part of the resurrection of the just but part of the resurrection of the unjust to the lake of fire. I pray that you would convict them of their peril and of their sin, and I pray that you bring them to Christ, give them that eternal secure hope in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.